HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to HRN on Tour at South by Southwest 2022. I am Christine Sykes-Low, and today I am joined by Andrew Zimmern, an Emmy Award-winning and four-time James Beard-winning TV personality, chef, writer, and teacher. Andrew is regarded as one of the most knowledgeable personalities in the food world. As the creator, executive producer, and host of the Travel Channel Bizarre Foods franchise, Andrew Zimmern's Driven by Food and Emmy-winning The Zimmern List, he has devoted his life to exploring and promoting cultural acceptance, tolerance, and understanding through food. In 2020, Andrew returned to television with the MSNBC series, What's Eating America? His latest series, Family Dinner, airs on Chip and Joanna Gaines' Magnolia Network and streams on Discovery+. Plus. So great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Thank you for taking the time. Um, there are a lot of things I can delve into <laughs> with what you have your hands in, which is a lot, but... First, let's talk about what brought you here to South by Southwest. I know you had a pretty intense panel on uh, oceans and yeah, what we're doing it, to them. It, it's funny that um, I was telling someone the other day that you could sort of tell the story of the uh, explosion uh, of our of our awareness of the destruction that's being caused to our planet and to the people who live here and the way in which we interact with each other through food 
just by looking at the last six years that I've been coming here. When I first came here, I was, you know, allowed to like say a couple sentences on a panel with like eight people. And I think they had food panels just one day here or food related panels on just one day and flash ahead six years. Um, I, I'm here Saturday to Saturday. I mean, that's an incredible thing. Um, Sunday, I was involved in uh, a whole range of activities around uh, plant-based food. Uh, Monday, I did some education stuff. Uh, Tuesday was aquaculture. Uh, yesterday was uh, – what was yesterday? Oh, my future of food, uh, my first future of food panel – uh, I have uh, two future of food events this afternoon and this evening, and then tomorrow I think another two panels. Uh, I'm doing a, a fireside interview in which I'm being uh, interviewed, and then uh, a panel about um, uh, halal foods. So it's, it, it, I mean, that's an entire week of different panels dedicated to different ideas about food, but at which I'm telling pretty much the identical story. And that's not to minimize what that story is. It's just that regardless of whether you're talking about the, you know, the the future of food or uh, with the panel on Friday on, on halal cuisine, the, the awareness of ethnocentrism and racism when it comes to food or uh, the aquaculture um, uh, silo that I did, which is really all, uh, all about how are we going to feed a hungry planet, assuming that there is one by 2050, um, is it's all talking about the same stuff, which is we're not doing enough. We are not doing enough across the the series of levers that need to be pulled sufficient to pull us out of this incredible morass that we've fallen into, and certainly not enough to do it in time by what I think when everything was printed a couple months ago, everyone was talking about 2050, and two weeks ago, the UN uh, study came out and said, yeah, whoop, wait, it's really 2035. And I'm, I'm constantly uh, flummoxed at how everybody, especially at, at this festival, is talking about, well, we have this initiative to rescue food, and we're going to do this over the next two, 10 years, and we're going to do this over the next you know, 15 years and, you know, big food companies are saying, well, we're going to replace our, our hard boiled eggs and our salad with, with organic eggs, you know, over the next 10 years. And it's really all too little, too late. We're, we have a catastrophe on our hands. So for those who could not partake in South by Southwest, what would be the key takeaway of, of what the general conversation has been on how do we how do we do our part? Because the Saving the Oceans panel, there were some ways to, you know, be responsible about being sustainable with fish and eating the right kind of fish, eating the right kind of seaweed. Absolutely. And I think people need to understand that uh, I think the big takeaway for me is is it, it, it's not an easily digestible sentence, but it's not that hard to chew on either. Uh, whew, thank thank God I didn't mix my metaphors there. Um, <laughs> the, the we are in an urgent situation. People need to start to change their habits and their lives 
immediately. Um, I think if if studies came out and showed people that uh, if you didn't run a mile every day, you'd get cancer. I think everyone would run a mile every day. I, I just do. But they don't understand that we have to apply that same thing to our climate crisis and our food system. And, and, it, and it really is sort of a Mobius strip, right? There's like 20 or 30 different uh, issues that are all interconnected. And we sort of have to push levers on all of them, not trying to make it more complex than it is. It's just that if, you know, let's say uh, you're an expert on immigration and you approach this Mobius strip of ideas and you sort of step into the wave, you know, the way surfers have to paddle and get up on the wave, you, you step in on that strip at, at immigration. Well, as you travel down that Mobius strip, that one-sided curved piece of paper, right? You will bump into uh, climate crisis, uh, hunger, waste, uh, uh, the, uh, you'll even bump into economic development, you'll bump into uh, international uh, security issues. It's um, a chain reaction, really. It's, it's several steps. Of, well, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. chain reaction is, is um, it's, I would say it's a chain yes. that's interrelated, and people don't quite understand how all that works, which is why I, why I love conferences like this, because you have, you have people up on panels who are speaking about urgency, and I hope people are, are understanding that the, there is no more time to waste to change how we interrelate with each other and with our planet. Absolutely. Uh, we all have to do our part. Uh, can't say it enough, and it's been said so many times. Um, and it's not hard. It, it actually, it actually isn't hard. That's that's the frightening part of it. You know, everyone says, "Well, let's ease back on fossil fuels." Well, why ease back? Why not have take this opportunity? Uh, you know, I mean, the the horrific, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia has um, caused gas prices and uh, fuel markets to uh, just explode and go all over the place and we can see it at the pump. This is just one little example. What more motivation do we need to go green and electric, not, not in 10 years, but how about in three or five and have the government step in and help people and subsidize getting, you know, gas guzzling cars off the road, right? I mean, there's just yeah. one, there's just one way to do it. It would be, it would be a massive step and we can get Western Europe and South America along with that. We can, we can start to make some real change when it comes to, to that issue. When it comes to, to hunger in America, we, we have more than enough food to feed everybody. We actually have more than enough food to feed everybody on the planet. There's 800 million people on the planet that go to bed hungry uh, every night, 800 million. But we have enough food to feed them. The, well, some of it. Um, I wish it was that easy. Uh, and we can talk about waste in a second. But, but simply on the hunger issue, if we change the five or six variables that we needed to get all the food fit for human consumption out of the system in which it sits and into the hands of the people who need it, um, amazing things would actually start to happen along that chain. And then you would have 
the chain reaction that you that you spoke about um, because to get the the food out of the field so it's not tilled under in the Salinas Valley, for example, we need more workers there to uh, plant it, pick it, and pack it, right? Which means we need to change uh, some of our immigration laws to allow for a new type of visa to increase the number of workers that can come up and do that because other people don't want to do those jobs, and despite the fact they're highly skilled and in many cases they're, they they pay a very decent amount, right? So I, I think what's what's really crucial here is for people to understand that feeding everyone is in our best interest because hungry people in our criminal justice system, the recidivism rates are much higher for those that are not fed well. Uh, students don't test as well when they're not fed. Their outcomes are lessened. So the, the if we fed people well... It impacts our criminal justice system in a positive way. It impacts our kids' futures in a positive way. And and most importantly, it impacts our health care cost. You know, everyone complains in this country about the rising cost of health care, and it's a massive, massive amount of money. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's a trillion-dollar problem. And people who have to choose between health uh, care or prescription and food. That is correct. So yeah. if we want to save yeah. money on the health care system, and that would save drop dollars for uh, medicine, but more importantly, it would eliminate the amount of money that we spend just on the four food-related diseases, right? Like diabetes and things like that, right? So if we're we're spending a trillion and a half dollars every year just on those four diseases alone, so if we just let's just say cut it in half, let's not even say that we solve the problem, right? Uh, by providing you know education. And uh, the right kind of foods, like the Food RX program, which is this teeny, teeny little program on Capitol Hill that should be this giant size program uh, that provides education and food to people uh, instead of just expensive insulin um, and other medicines. If, if we did that and we cut that, if everyone was healthier with fewer visits to the hospital and we saved $750 billion, the impact there would be uh, amazing. So when you start to just work the hunger angle, there's an incredible group of problems that get solved or worked on and resolved and ultimately do affect our uh, our climate because we would, by the nature of feeding people, have to diversify the places from which our food comes from. And if we're going to do it in a healthy way to aid in our healthcare system, it has to be an increase in smaller amounts of protein, greater amount of vegetables, uh, beans, farinaceous foods, things like that. And, uh, and that means getting away from those factory farms that are, you know, CAFO farms that are raising meat under what I consider to be horrific conditions, but are also damaging our water table and our environment and, you know, contributing to that greenhouse effect. Note that I said contributing to our greenhouse effect. So these things are all interrelated. And so regardless of what panels that I sit on, and we haven't even touched the social justice and equity piece of this this puzzle as well, but you know, enrolling those people that have been absent from the conversation for so long, despite the fact that it is historically on their backs that this agricultural-based uh, country was founded, um, we can start to, to make the right kind of um, 
moves there to be an inclusive society, whether it comes to the color of your skin, the God you choose to worship, the person you choose to love, uh, your gender, however you define it. I mean, we, we don't have 20, 30 years to solve this problem, right? I mean, this is that that's the, the damning part about all of this is that we're talking about, you know, basic human dignity here and the possibilities for our children and their future. And we're kind of lollygagging around saying, well, you know, tonight I'll go bowling and I'll deal with those problems tomorrow. And I, 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 I just, every day that I wake up, I'm more and more astounded by it. And really, I mean, the, well said, first of all, every part of that, that's, it's, it's, it's on many people's minds, but I don't think the way you exactly put it could be, you know, thought out that way, like by everyone. I think, I think you, you really delved into the multi layers of how one thing obviously affects another, not necessarily chain reaction, but it does kind of go into that. But no, but I know why you said chain reaction, because there, it's a reactive system, but within each reaction there is a chain you know i mean the 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 most obvious one and one that i i left out that i think it's important for people is you know if you are a i'll just say a traditional conservative right um you 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 want lower unemployment for the economic benefits that we have. And so therefore bringing people in on new visa programs to work is very important. They pay taxes in this country comes out of every paycheck, right? So Regardless of where you sit on the immigration issue and how we define those workers, uh, that has a net-net benefit, right? And those people are, you know, I, I've interviewed them. Uh, I've been out in the the fields, uh, you know, from, you know, Tennessee to Minnesota, from Florida to Texas to California and the Salinas Valley, where 35, 38% of our fruits and vegetables come from in this country. And I've interviewed the farm owners and the farm managers and the farm workers, and I've gone back to their homes to see where they live and how they live. Um, and I've explored this story uh, it, at, at serious depth uh, and and made a, a series of uh, specials for MSNBC called What's Eating America on this subject. And the, the the vast majority of that money heads back to these workers' countries of origin, right? Which are, in this country are are almost exclusively Central America, right? And you know, so that's Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador and all that stuff. And so those are all the countries that are quote unquote people banging at our border, right? With um, you know, horrific stories about. Uh, uh, drug cartels and narco traffickers and a lack of safety and lack of attention from their government and all the rest of that kind of thing. So the money that goes back there that provides uh, all, all those people, the answer everyone gave was, I need money to send back home to help care for my parents and to provide school for my kids, right? Now, both of those things provide safety and in the case of education for the children, also opportunity, and opportunity for the elders as well, right, in extended life. Um, but the, of course, w- when we're educating kids in other countries and, and those people are sending dollars back into their country's system, for the people who say, well, that's a waste, it's not a waste. That's an, not only is that an economic development program, but it's an, an inner international safety program for our country. Uh, disenfranchised people... 
um, who, and, we, and we've seen studies on this all over the place, especially in some of the more dangerous areas in the, in the Middle East, disenfranchised people with nothing to do turn to violence and turn to other ways to occupy their time that are not contributing to global safety. Um, so the more that we can move dollars around in a healthy way that provides for economic development and education, the safer we all are. And when I say we all, I'm not just talking about Americans, I'm talking about people in other countries. And so some of our other problems uh, would disappear. Um, I, I am a firm believer that if we change our immigration system here in America and change some of our laws around farming and decentralized farming in America and stopped calling food fit for human consumption a, a specialized crop, um, we, we wouldn't have thousands of uh, – what was the last caravan? Salvadorans or Hondurans? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it. At our southern border, you know, begging to come into the United States, creating a, a – a, a horrific human uh, crisis on our border. We, th those th that simply would cease to exist if we change those other things. We use the word chain reaction, and, and that word reaction, I think, is the is the key word to pull out there. We are not reacting appropriately to those problems. We are not meeting them head on, and we have to meet them head on. And I think uh, part of that meeting them head on is, um, you know, you mentioned talking about going to the farmers and seeing where they live and finding out the stories. You mm -hmm. know, you're a master storyteller. You have your production company, Intuitive uh, Content, mm -hmm. that produces a lot of different shows. Um, you know, what got you into those intimate peaks into storytelling? I mean, obviously, it's to educate the public, but um, what do you look for when you're when you're producing your shows? Uh, to entertain the public first. <laughs> um, the you know the the problem with educating the public is that everyone is like, you know, I don't come home at night from work and turn on the TV. Uh, because I want to learn something necessarily. I, I, I want to be entertained. I want to, you know, I, I, I don't want to think about, you know, work or this problem or that problem. And so I think you have to offer an entertaining product that at the end of it leaves people shaking their heads saying, wow, that was great. And, you know, I didn't know that dot, dot, dot. Right, that's the key thing. Is the I didn't know part. Now, look, if we're making a documentary, by its very nature, we're doing more education than we are, say, in a lifestyle program uh, that we make. You know, a lifestyle program would be something like Bizarre Foods or Zimmern List or Family Dinner. We still talk about issues there. We we just you know we don't hit people over the head with the hammer every five seconds. It it, it may take up, you know, 10, 15, 20% of the content that is actual discussion about something that's going on that affects everybody, but right? But it scratches so the curiosity. Of course it does. Yes. You know, and then in our documentary work, it's reversed. It's, you know, 20% entertainment because you want to be able to grab people and have them enjoy what they're watching. Someone's not enjoying what they're watching. They're going to turn it off. So people have to enjoy it. I, I, I think people... One of the best things that's happened in media over the last 10 years is the uh, is thanks to the streamers. There's an entire row, whether it's 
Netflix, Amazon, Discovery Plus, Paramount, Apple. I mean, I could keep going on with the big streamers, Peacock. You know, it's, you know, uh, uh, action movies, you know, binge-worthy series, you know, sports. You know, they've got all the categories. And then you come to a line that says documentaries. And people start scrolling across and they see everything from My Octopus Teacher uh, to, you know, a Ken Burns series, to, you know, uh, What's Eating America, to, you know, some Summer of Soul or, or whatever it is. And I think people, you know, 20 years ago, I, I'm, I'm 60, right? So I'm, I'm, I remember when you would watch the Academy Awards and they came to documentary films and they named five and I maybe had heard of one or two because it was on PBS, you know? And now when they announce the documentary winners, it's like, well, (laughs) all of them, all of them are available to everyone on streamers. And I recognize them uh, all. And if I don't, or I'm intrigued by one and I haven't seen, it's really easy to find because those documentaries typically are are cheaper acquisitions for streamers to get so they can buy lots of them and put them in a big content wheel that people seem to be watching a lot more of. You know, people complain about uh, Joe Exotic and that whole, you know, that whole mess or or a, uh, you know, and there's some documentaries that have, you know, I, I feel personally have been really misleading or come to the wrong conclusions. But, you know, when you have, um, when you have something that captivates the nation, the way the, the Joe exotic series did, um, that, that, that was documentary, you know, and it was a type of storytelling that people were like, wow, I learned a lot, but that was really entertaining. Right. And, and unexpected, just oh, uh, so many layers of unexpected. Fantastic, right? Yeah. I mean, real life, you just can't make it up. Right. And um, so consequently, I think that was a boon for makers because and, – and people who are trying to tell real stories because it, it opens up this whole world for people that are like, well – I'll give that a shot because the last time I clicked on, you know, Doc, there there was, and I got hooked and I binged the whole thing, right? So I think it works. Well, I um, I was looking at your series and one of the more recent one is uh, for the Outdoor Channel, yep. Wild Game Kitchen. Yeah, that and... just dropped on Monday. Oh, really? So, well, so... it started, it, it, it's starting as a digital uh, release okay. with um, eight to 10 minute, pieces of the show available to those on outdoorchannel.com, I I think it is. Uh, And then uh, they're bundling them up uh, into a half hour for Outdoor Channel's Linear uh, for release later this September. And we're making... we're making more of them. They've greenlit uh, subsequent uh, seasons of the show. So we're we're making more in a couple of weeks. Well, I, it piqued my curiosity. I'm from Asheville, North Carolina, oh, in right the middle on. of the mountains. And, yeah. and um, a lot of hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. lots of fishing, a lot of foraging. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what got you into the idea or the concept of, I mean, is it, is it lifelong... survivor me- meets? <laughs> is no, it not okay. at all. I'm a, I'm a lifelong outdoorsman. And okay. um, what always puzzled me is that um, if I showed up at someone's house, uh, you know, we'd gone, let's say, uh, pheasant shooting. 
and we were lucky and we got a couple birds. Uh, out would come the cream of mushroom, can of cream of mushroom soup and the crock pot. And I would be like, wow, that's a pheasant. I mean, do you, uh, uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> the cream of mushroom cooking soup it for crock. 10 hours in a crock pot with cream of mushroom soup doesn't make a good product. It, it does, but I don't really taste the pheasant per se. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I understand uh, you know, why people would go out fishing and, you know, catch 20, you know, limit out on a, their walleye or whatever, and then fillet them and freeze them and eat off them, you know, for months and months and months. I, I, I get that too. Um, but maybe there's a, there's a better way, uh, to cook some of this stuff and to show people that, um, you can take wild food and, and I've, I mean, look, I, I believe we need to reduce pressure on our food system. So if everyone in America skipped one meal a week, I'm not talking about kids or seniors, but everyone else in the middle, we skipped one meal a week. We took one meal from a, uh, a, from a replacement product, right? Like Soylent, something that is, that is just completely, it's, it's gives us all the nutrition that we need, but is actually uh, skipping a meal. And one meal from the wild, we would reduce the pressure on our food system by a seventh, right? I'd it's a day that of eating. Challenge. That's a huge. We could all do that, and it doesn't have to be all in one day, right? But right. we would we would reduce what is that thirteen fourteen percent of the pressure on our food system, which has an intense amount of pressure on it, right? So imagine what that would do alone to our food system. I was thinking about all these ideas, and I said, you know, when when I um, when I'm cooking pheasant, I, you know, I braise the legs and I sear the breasts and I, and I serve it with a very simple, you know, creamy three ingredient, four ingredient sauce. Um, that's kind of my version of mushroom soup. It only takes me, you know, an hour in the kitchen. I should really do that recipe for an audience that is used to cooking up birds, right? And um, I want to show people what you can do with, uh, you know, the the top round of a venison, a hoofed animal, right? And I want to show people what you can do if you if you go to a lake or a river and grab a trout or a walleye. Um, and I want to show people what you can do with with foraging. And, and how to deal with it in the kitchen. So I, we don't have a scene of me going out shooting or fishing or anything. It's, it's all done in an outdoor kitchen set. Uh, and we go from state to state with the weather so that we can actually be outdoors. And we create, I've created recipes that are translatable even if you're not an outdoors person. So the, the pheasant recipe that I did with, uh, you know, Applejack and apple cider and diced apples and shallots uh, and cream, uh, browning and braising the legs and searing the breasts and then reducing that sauce and pouring it over. You could do that with chicken. You could do it with a turkey breast from your supermarket, right? Um, I just did it with pheasant. So we 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 make sure that for every recipe, we are including all the people that maybe sitting on their couch saying, well, I don't have access to a pheasant. It's like, we can do this with chicken, 
from your supermarket too. It's going to be a really, really delicious recipe. And if you if you don't have if you're not pulling a trout out of a stream, but you want to buy a small fish with its head on it, which more people should be eating anyway, um, so that we're not just eating the same four seafood items: salmon, shrimp, tuna, halibut, over and over and over. Um, you can do that too. And I'm just trying to open up people's minds to cook differently in their own kitchens, but I'm doing it by appealing to a group of people, the the outdoors channel community, which is 30, 40 million strong um, and very active uh, and really embraces uh, their lifestyle. Um, give them an alternative uh, and give them a cooking show, but at the same time, hoping that other people come to it and say, well, I don't do that, but I, I could, or, well, I don't do that, but at least I can cook that using what's in my house, right? Yeah. So if you don't do it with deer, you can do it with lamb from the supermarket, right? right. I mean, it's, this, it's, this, it's food is food. The other thing that we do is everything is cooked over live fire. And I think that as a chef, that's the most fun stuff to cook. It's the funnest. It's the hardest to control, but it's the funnest. It right? is. <laughs> and and so teaching people how easy that sort of is, um, I, I think the problem is, is you know, the, the, the idea that, um, that you need a lot of heat is, is sort of the, the misleading one. That's the big myth to blow up. You just need consistent heat. At some point, you can pile up the coals and put a crust or sear on something, or the reverse, sear it and then push some coals away and let it slowly cook. Um, you don't want to carbonize your stuff. Uh, but, I mean, we're doing, you know, corn pudding in a ca covered cast iron skillet, and we're doing it Dutch oven style by piling coals on top. That's one of my favorites, right. by the way. So it's, I mean, it, it, and the people don't realize that that even in a covered Dutch oven, you know, a, a cast iron pot with a lid, um, that smoky flavor, that, that flavor of the fire goes into the food and it makes it taste 20 times better. Sautéing in a skillet over wood-burning coals, the, 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 the flavor of the fire convex into the pan and the moisture that comes out of the pan... Uh, drops back down onto the, comes back up as flavor. It's this constant ebb and flow of flavor as you, as you cook your food, putting the flavor of the wood into your, into your food in a good way, yes. by the way. And so um, for all those people who are like, boy, do I love a grilled hamburger, you know, over wood burning charcoal, right? It just, it, we're supplying all that too. These are, by the way, very simple recipes. I mean, it's it's gumbo. It's you know, it's grilled chops. It's sautéed uh, you know grilled fish and sautéed uh, wild mushrooms. And it's it's really a lovely way to introduce people to the idea of all of these concepts. And it's a, it's an empowering kind of way too, because like you said, they may not be have all the ingredients or they may not uh, cook over live fire often or whatever the process is, but they can still recreate it and it, Absolutely, and you can do it in your oven too. Right, right. So for people who just come for a food show, it's there. Yeah. You know, but, and, and we don't disenfranchise anyone uh, with the recipes. There's, and, and I think that's, I think that's really important too. I mean, you know, there, look, there are ITK, 
in the kitchen shows that are on certain networks where there's a fancy chef who is like, well, you know, here's my halibut with sauterne and truffles. And if you don't have sauterne, there's really no, you don't have truffles, there's really no replacement. And, you know, we love watching that the way we like watching a fireplace, right? It's just fun to watch someone cook that. Um, but people aren't rushing back into their kitchen and recreating it. I, I can tell you that from experience. I've been in this game a long time. So I wanted to do something that anyone could watch and then go back and cook. Anyone, right? Um, so it's 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 super simple. You know, showing people how to, you know, take, you know, wild hog bacon and uh, jalapenos and wild rice and make a pilaf that goes with you know, something, um, they may just be buying, you know, wild boar bacon or something like that at a, at a store, right. Or at a meat locker where they see it for, you know, and you know, I live in Minnesota. So we have these, you know, butcher shops that are really meat lockers, right. Where you come and people take their animals to be dressed, uh, but they sell product, right. And, you know, people are always like, you know, buying these sort of specialty you know, products online. We learned that in COVID. Um, and so even if you're making it on your stovetop, you know, explore that idea. Your wild rice doesn't have to be cooked the way grandma did, right? You, it, it, you can explore it a different way. And, you know, uh, you know, boar bacon, wild hog bacon, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, smoked is, uh, of course, is a wonderful product to cook with, has a lot less fat, is better for you than traditional bacon, um, and is is a wonderful addition to that. You don't have to pile the wild rice with, you know, cream and chicken to make soup every time. Right. It just, it's, I think it's kind of cool. It is cool. Yeah. So uh, I, um, I've been doing this thing during some of my interviews. If I have a friend who... Uh, knows someone that I will ask a, a friend from a, a question from a good friend. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have a mutual friend, Matt Jamie mm -hmm. with bourbon barrel foods. Sure. And um, he, I said, Matt, you know, what, what kind of, what kind of question do you want me to ask Andrew? And uh, he said, <laughs> I don't know, I guess I'll go there. I'm making, I'm making a face because Matt and I are, are, uh, close friends and have shared a lot over the years yes. about real life. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder where this question is yeah. going. <laughs> well, um, he just said... But Matt, Matt is famous uh, for he created a company where he first started making his own soy sauce and aging it in old bourbon barrels. Yes. And the company has expanded from there and Bourbon Barrel Foods is a, is a, is a great great company. He's a great guy. A lot of delicious uh, things come out of there. Um, he wanted to know, have you ever thrown a pair of horse testicles up on top of a barn? Uh, I have. He was there. Um, the, it, it doesn't sound as crazy as it is. Uh, uh, apparently, um, in the nights leading up to the Kentucky Derby, uh, Matt's in Louisville, um, and uh, as is his company. And uh, we were down there shooting many years ago. And uh, it w there was a party that uh, Ed Lee threw uh, at that we were shooting some TV at. And there were a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, uh, famous little villains, 
Is that the way you would say it? Uh, Kentuckians uh, there. We had a wonderful, wonderful dinner party, and Ed cooked some incredible food. And, you know, the storyline of that episode was revolving around uh, the city of Louisville, and ultimately several of the stories revolved around uh, horses and the Kentucky Derby and all this kind of thing. And when uh, when some horses, um, for various reasons, are snipped, uh, the 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 testicles are saved and they are taken out in the nights before the Kentucky Derby and thrown up on a roof or over a roof for good luck. And I, I know it's, it's, I had no idea. It's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's an ancient tradition. Uh, and, uh, of course, because I was the, the, the host of the show, they, they, honored me with the toss. With the throwing. <laughs> and I I was very afraid that I would under toss and hit a window. Or someone. <laughs> and and you know, you're from fairly far away and the the you know it the 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 they've got some heft to them. So it's like, you know, I I I was trying to get it on the roof, right? And if I remember correctly, this is like ten years ago, I believe I threw it over the roof. And we didn't know where they lay. So of course, it's like you just don't want that like lying around. Did it go in the over the roof into the neighbor's yard in the kid's sandbox? I mean, that would be a horrific sort a of horrific thing. Discovery. So the, the you know it's it's nine o'clock at night, and you know everyone's like, well, where where are they? Let's find them. It was it was pretty funny. Oh, but yes, boy. I, I that is a that is a true story. And and by the way, we left that scene on camera in. It's at the end of the Bizarre, Vo Bizarre Foods uh, Louisville show. Oh, well, uh, thank you, Matt, for that question, because that I didn't know where that was going either, and that was that was awesome. It's a heck of a, it was a great question. I mean, very, very specific. <laughs> yes, it but was. A, but a great question. And I just question. went with it. I'm like, I didn't even ask him any more questions. I said, okay. Yeah, yeah. it, it was I'll great. Matt, uh, he makes a cameo in the uh, 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 Zimmernless Louisville episode. Which people can people can watch both of those on D plus the Discovery streamer where all of my my TV work resides. It's been so great talking with you. Thank you for coming and oh, taking the time to chat with us my and um, all your work that you're doing here at South by. Um, I'm going to be actually at the food uh, mission driven startups mm -hmm. event this evening. I'm looking forward to exploring what's going on with the food tank and yeah. all the initiatives there. It's, it's really interesting. There's tons of solutions here. You know, I've, I've told this story about 15 times since I, since it happened earlier in Sunday night. Uh, but a young woman came up to me late twenties and she's from Costa Rica, lives in San Francisco. And she has started a, uh, company that makes coffee without coffee beans. Our environment globally is wreaking havoc on coffee farms around the world, uh, which require very specific, um, environments, biospheres, um, biosystems to, I mean, whether the coffee beans are raised at, at, at sea level, uh, or a little higher in Ethiopia or, you know, in the cloud forests, uh, in Nicaragua, it, 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 it requires very specific systems depending on what kind of bean it is. And, um, 
the climate crisis has changed weather so drastically and so quickly over the last 30 years um, that uh, coffee farmers are really struggling, uh, both with, with yields and being able to guarantee uh, volume and, and things like that. And um, it's, uh, it, it, it's horrific. And you can imagine sometimes with too much rain, the erosion of the soil uh, where the, the, the coffee trees are, it's, it's just a, 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 it's a bad situation. And there are people, uh, there are many articles have been written, people just, you know, go ahead and Google it, you can find hundreds, don't believe me. Um, things like uh, crops, like coffee, are actually endangered. And we're seeing a rise in coffee prices around the world. And so this young lady has a solution, which is a, you know, a non-coffee bean coffee. Now, we all have seen caffeinated water on the marketplace, right? And caffeinated sodas and energy drinks that have caffeine in them. And some people drink a cup of coffee in the morning for the pleasure of, of getting a little boost from the caffeine. Other, people's lo- other people love the flavor of coffee. I'm, I go for I'm both. a decaf. I yeah. love the flavor I of coffee. I love the flavor of good coffee. And so, you know, if we were able to ease the pressure you know, a certain number of percentage points by people who would willingly drink that. Um, it might help all of those farmers and it might help that that piece of the coffee system, right? And, you know, obviously the, the big one is to heal our planet and and at least stop the climate crisis in its tracks and get it into neutral so it doesn't get worse, Right, um, and then manage it from there uh, in terms of the farmers, because we need to take care of our farmers around the world. Um, but those kind of innovative solutions are kind of what makes South by Southwest so much fun. Learning about that kind of stuff—it's—it's it's not what I learned at panels. It's the person who walks up to me and hands me their card and says, "Hey, this is what I do." Yes, and it's the—it's the convergence of all the different disciplines too. The tech meets the arts, mm-hmm. the you know, and how they influence one yeah. another and educate yeah. people. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you again, Andrew. Sure. I have uh, my friend Susan here who would like to ask a question. So I'm curious, uh, um, what food or smell takes you back to your childhood? Roast chicken. Roast chicken? Is that like what your mom made? My grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it literally takes me back into a place. Now, I should say, um, grandma didn't wash her apron uh Every day. She washed her apron once a week. So she'd make dinner and then hang her apron back on the hook in the kitchen. And she had a habit of wiping her hands uh, in the sort of center of the apron, about an inch or two uh, north of her belly button. And she, you know, made her own schmaltz and, you know, roasted meats and roasted chickens uh, frequently. So uh, by the end of the week, there was sort of like a, a brown circle of, of chicken roasted meat smelling stuff in the middle of her apron, uh, sometimes more prevalent at times than others, but always there. And whenever she would hug me goodbye, and this is when I'm like seven, eight, nine years old, my face is right in that roast. So it's not only the smell of her apartment when you'd open the door if she'd been cooking all day and you'd smell all that roasted chicken and roasted whatever. It was the it was the hug goodbye. So I can't smell roast chicken 
anywhere in the world and not think about my grandmother. Immediately, I'm transported back to her kitchen. Immediately. Excellent. Thank you. I love that question, Susan. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank really you. really appreciate People, it. Uh, all things uh, that we talked about is all at andrewzimmern.com. There's no paywall there. Just go to andrewzimmern.com and learn more about the stuff that we're up to. And you have a great newsletter, Spilled Milk. That uh, Oh, thank you. Yes. AndrewZimmern.substack.com. Yes. Please subscribe. Uh, it's it's a new project for us, but it helps keeps the it helps keep the light on lights on at the office and it's it's growing and people are enjoying it. I think it's a ton of fun. Super cool. Thanks yeah. again. Appreciate thank you. it. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to HRN's coverage of South by Southwest 2022. You can listen to all of our coverage on our podcast, HRN on Tour. Find it on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work, and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Thank you for your support.